Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 11 this morning. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Revelation together and uh, as we're making our way there just a reminder that on Sunday mornings we go through the Bible uh, Genesis to Revelation and uh, we begin a new book tonight on that journey the book of Malachi the final book of the New Testament and uh, Old Testament rather and an awful lot of lessons that are found there as was mentioned, we'll also be enjoying the Lord's Supper. And then by way of reminder, we can sometimes forget this, that the Lord's Supper is a command for us as Christians. And so if it's been a little while since you've done that, um, here's an opportunity to uh, partake this evening. Chapter 11, uh, verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. And these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast will, that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. And in the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. And in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Let's pray together. Father, we marvel at the diversity of your book, the Bible. And we acknowledge as we now turn to study your word after reading it, that every portion of it is supposed to build something into our lives, into our spirit, into our understanding of you, of life, the world around us, to thoroughly furnish us unto every good work. And we pray, Lord, that all of those things that are found in these verses and are intended to be a part of us and our relationship with you and our understanding of your will, that you would accomplish that this morning in just a miracle of your Holy Spirit. And we pray and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning we continue this parenthetical passage in the book of Revelation that constitutes the overwhelming majority of chapters 10 through 14 in 
looking at these two men who are introduced to us here in chapter 11. Very, very fascinating men. Fascinating ministry. And they are affectionately known as the two witnesses of the Revelation for those that are familiar with them and their ministry and, and the book of, of Revelation. And uh, we want to look at them, look at their ministry, but also see what it is that their lives uh, are intended to instruct us in our lives and our ministries as well as Christians. We begin with the Apostle John's description of their witness or the description of their ministry in verses 3 through 6. And you notice that in verse 3, that even though they're commonly known as the two, great, the two uh, witnesses in the Revelation, uh, they are not referred to as the two witnesses technically, but as my two witnesses. And it's a personal pronoun that is used, and it's speaking of uh, God's relationship with them and their relationship with Him, and that what they do now in their little part in this tribulation period, what they do, they do under the direction of God, and they do out of obedience to His call and purpose for their lives. They're called to uniquely, in a very unique time in human history, to stand and to represent God, to speak to Him in the midst of a world that is going, is going to be completely uh, demonic and completely demonically influenced, of course, by the devil, by the Antichrist, and, and uh, that will be the atmosphere of the world. And when we look at what it is that they do and the environment in which they serve the Lord, if any of us, uh, myself included, feels any kind of self-pity over how hard what it is that we're doing for the Lord, this certainly puts it in perspective. That's always a valuable thing for me, and it's a valuable thing for us as well. You notice, too, in, in verse 2, that uh, they're going to be supernaturally empowered to accomplish their service. And then in verse 2 as well, uh, we're told the duration of their specific ministry, that it will be 1,260 days. And that's three and a half years. Their ministry will cover three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation uh, period. And certainly that uh, 1,260 days refers to one block or the other. Uh, refers to either the first three and a half years or the second three and a half years. And then that all raises a, an important question in trying to understand all of this, to understand their ministry and the progression of what's going on in the Revelation. And that the question that gets asked is, okay, which half do they minister in? Is their ministry performed in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period or the second three and a half years? Well, you have Bible students and Bible scholars that are divided in terms of their opinions. And no one, absolutely no one can be dogmatic related to this and say, this is the law of the Medes and the Persians, and I'm right and everybody else is, is wrong. But I am, I'm strongly inclined toward the view that they minister for the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation uh, period and at the risk of, of getting way ahead of myself here in this passage and maybe confusing some of you related to that, let me tell you why. First, we know from verse 8 that the entirety of their ministry is going to take place in the city of uh, Jerusalem, the city where Jesus was uh, crucified. 
Second, I think it is significant that the Lord sets the tone or He introduces the two witnesses in chapter 11 with verses 1 and 2. As we saw last week with the instruction concerning the building of what is known as the tribulation uh, temple. And so it seems to speak to the fact that the context of uh, their witness is going to be at the site of the temple for three and a half years in Jerusalem, but in the vicinity of the tribulation temple that the Jews will rebuild during the first half of the tribulation period as a result of a deal with the devil that they've made, their covenant with the Antichrist to do so. I believe that they will prophesy to the Jews, but to the whole world as well, throughout the entire period of the construction uh, of that temple in, in Jerusalem. And, uh, and then uh, they will also then subsequently uh, witness to and prophesy on behalf of God to all of the Jews who then come from all over the world to then worship at that temple. And the great message that they will declare, among other messages, is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that He is the Savior uh, of, of the world. These prophecies that they're going to make during the tribulation period are not going to be limited to the Jews. Uh, the messages will uh, be to the entire world and will be heard by the entire world and impact the entire world uh, as well as we'll see in just a few minutes. Again, getting ahead of myself a little bit here in the passage, it seems like the natural flow of the events uh, here uh, could be as follows. Their prophetic ministry uh, is, occurs in the vicinity of the tribulation temple uh, during its construction and then also following its completion at the end of the three and a half years of their uh, ministry, the Antichrist, we're told in verse 7, will be allowed to make war with them, overcome them, and kill them. And then the Antichrist, emboldened in his ability to have accomplished that at three and a half uh, years, and probably prevented by the two witnesses themselves from doing it any earlier, uh, he will then, in that boldness, commit the abomination which causes desolation that marks the halfway point of the tribulation period. He will go into the rebuilt temple, into the Holy of Holies, declare himself to sit down, declare himself to be God, and demand that the whole world worship him uh, as God. And he will defile that temple as a result of, of those actions. The Jews at that point will recognize that they've been deceived by the Antichrist. They will flee Jerusalem as fast as they can. And immediately after which, the Antichrist is going to unleash the worst persecution against the Jews that they've ever known. And they've known a lot of persecution. He will endeavor to absolutely annihilate them off of, of the face of the earth. And they would be annihilated except for the fact that God rises up uh, to then defend them, as we'll see a little bit later uh, in the Revelation another time. And with these events, then Satan is going to make the tribulation temple the center for the worship of the Antichrist, ultimately demanding that everyone worship him under the threat uh, of death. And the great tribulation, that second half 
of the tribulation period that's known as the Great Tribulation uh, will be off and running at that point and all of the terrible and righteous judgment will then uh, unfold. If the ministry of the two witnesses occurs in the second half of, of the tribulation uh, period, as some believe, it wouldn't make sense that they would begin their ministry in Jerusalem uh, and, then per, and then fulfill their ministry for the entirety of the three and a half years, uh, a ministry focused supremely upon the Jews. They are Jews themselves. If all of the Jews have fled Jerusalem by that point under the persecution of the Antichrist. Additionally, I don't know that the Antichrist is going to have enough time at the end of the three and a half, second three and a half years of the tribulation to deal with these guys. Toward the very end of the tribulation period, there will be a confederation of nations in the south and in the north, in Africa, and they will rebel against the authority and the rule of the Antichrist. When he goes down there to put down that rebellion, two great armies will come, from, come at him from the north, one coming from the north, one coming from the east, all of these armies ultimately meet together in the valley of Megiddo, and then there is the valley of Armageddon. Seems like he's going to have his hands quite full at that point to not be concerned about what is happening there in, in Jerusalem uh, at the same time. And how will, at the end of the tribulation period, the world is going to be so devastated by the seal and the trumpet and the bold judgments, it causes me to ask, how will the world population be in any condition to celebrate uh, the death of these two witnesses after all of that judgment and, and complete with parties uh, and, and gifts? It seems best to me that they minister in the first uh, half. You notice in verse 2 that they're going to be uh, clothed in sackcloth, and that was uh, the clothing of the Old Testament prophets. They would wear sackcloth, as they would then declare, uh, uh, confront people with their sin, and then call on them to repent. Well, you would look at it and say, well, why didn't the prophets in the Old Testament, and why didn't these guys uh, wear silk and make their hairs wear sackcloth? Why are they wearing the sackcloth when the others need to feel bad about where they are? And it communicates the fact that these two witnesses, when they witness, it's an indication that this isn't something that's easy for them to do. They will do it. They don't regret it. They know they are supposed to do it. But it isn't easy for them to uh, speak to the entire world at that point of the fact that judgment is coming and that they need uh, to repent and to speak of the destruction of the wicked if they, if they don't. And so their, their hearts are not hard toward their audiences. They will do what they need to do. But their hearts are broken that the world has even been brought into this condition that forces them then and God through them to deliver a message like, uh, like this. And so in all of this, they're very much like God who the Bible says takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they, they would repent. Their specific ministry in verse 4 will be to prophesy to man on God's behalf. 
And to prophesy means to simply speak forth. They're going to, uh, God is going to uh, give them messages. They're going to speak that forth uh, to the whole world. They're going to speak for God in, in the, the d- very, very dense, demonic atmosphere, spiritual atmosphere of the tribulation uh, period. And during that time now, the rapture of the church uh, has occurred, and people are done with God, and especially that God of the Bible, and they're going to think that now we've been freed forever from being confronted with God's commandments and with the Word of God and, and being confronted with God's truth ever again and all of His absolutes and His definitions of right and, and, and wrong. And, uh, and yet, these two are going to come into that environment and they're going to continue to be a voice for God in the world. And they will have a worldwide audience Their prophecies are certainly going to include confronting the world with their wickedness, calling the world to repent uh, of their sin, a proclamation of the gospel, God's offer of salvation, even at that late hour. An offer of salvation that is found through faith in in Jesus Christ, and the warning of the Jews concerning uh, the Antichrist. Later in verse 10, we learn that God's truth, as it's spoken through these prophets, is a torment uh, to the hearers of their message. Uh, Here you'll have a world that will be in the kind of condition and rebellion against God that to have any contact with any voice or sentence from God is going to be considered a torment uh, to them. Imagine living in a world where the Word of God is, is a literal torment to its hearers. I mean, that, that, that is going, that, that's going to be a, a, a demonized world in a way that the world has never, ever known uh, before. Uh, if you've seen any of the uh, videos that happened uh, immediately after on television when it got leaked by somebody that uh, where the, the Supreme Court might be leaning related to Roe v. Wade and the potential that it would be overturned. And I pray every day that it's overturned. And we will celebrate if it's overturned. And, uh, but these demonstrations occurred where you had pro-life people uh, out on the street and then you had pro-abortion people and you see the pro-abortion people come and just with contorted faces, angry, I mean livid uh, with uh, people who are just would dare to oppose them uh, by uh, standing for the protection of the unborn, the preborn, and when you see the contorted faces, when you see the anger, when you see how they would the the harm they would do to a person if they weren't restrained by by laws, then you're just getting a foretaste of what the whole world is going to be like during the tribulation uh, period, and what their hatred of these two witnesses will will be like. And again, in this revelation, we're shown the great links that God goes to. Despite their hatred of Him, their hatred of, of His Word, they've turned their back on Him, and, and that's understating it, but He will not give up on endeavoring for them 
to be saved, to turn from their position that they're in. And so these two witnesses are part of God's voice calling the world to repentance even during that time. We read earlier in the book of Revelation, an angel will go forth and preach the gospel to the entire world. The 144,000 will be preaching the gospel to the world as we saw previously. And then you're going to have an innumerable multitude of people who will become Christians during the tribulation period, and they will become evangelists uh, as well. God's grace is really amazing, where He he will not give up as long as there's an opportunity for somebody to turn. And what grace, the, the ministry of these two servants is, in trying to get people to reconsider uh, their conclusions concerning God and His Word and His Son. You notice in verse 4 that the two witnesses are described as the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before uh, the, uh, the God of the earth. And so the imagery is from uh, Zechariah chapter 4 where it is com- communicated there in this context with this imagery that Zerubbabel the governor of Jerusalem at that time and Joshua the high priest that they would finish the rebuilding of the temple upon their return to Jerusalem following the Babylonian captivity and that they would finish the ministry finish the building of the temple uh, under the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so it's communicating that these two witnesses are going to perform something far more difficult than the rebuilding of that temple. And, and that is, they're going to stand against a, a, a darkness and a demonic evil that it, it is, is impossible to explain. And, and to put into words, and they will stand for God in the middle of that environment and they will do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be the explanation for what it is that they do for that three and a half years and their faithfulness to what God called, calls them to unique, uniquely do. And I think it's wonderful to realize that the same power that we see uh, demonstrated in these two witnesses by the Holy Spirit is the same power of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians. And, and as Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, but if the, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, speaking to us as Christians, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit, who dwells in you. God will supply all of the power and enabling of the Holy Spirit that any of us will ever need to fulfill what God has called us to do for Him as His children. Doesn't matter what the environment is. Doesn't matter how hard it is. Doesn't matter how demonic it is. Doesn't matter about any, any condition in the world. 
And Jesus spoke about the baptism with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and He talked about it being the power to be witnesses to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. The hardest two places to be a witness for Christ as a Christian is on the other side of the world and in our own home. But it's Jesus' way of saying, this is the power to live for me and speak for me no matter where you might find yourself uh, in the world. And it's a wonderful truth and it's a wonderful confidence that God wants us to have. I think it's also instructive to notice that God will not bless that uh, tribulation temple with not one bit of His anointing. All of the anointing of His Holy Spirit is outside that temple. All of His anointing and the demonstration of, of His power and the presence of the Spirit is upon those two witnesses as they stand outside uh, of the temple and they call on those who are entering the temple to repent and to come to Jesus as their Savior. All of God's action is outside that, that temple. All of His witness and his, to, to His truth. You notice in verse 5 that all attempts to harm these two witnesses and bring their ministry to an end, it's going to be fruitless. So that tells us uh, there are going to be uh, attempts made to silence them, to stop what it is that they're saying, we don't want to hear it, we don't want to be convicted of our sin, we don't want to hear what you're saying on behalf of God. And so lots of attempts will be made to silence their voices by means of of, of, of violence. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth, devours their enemies, resulting in death. How great would that be? To just have that. Just, just a little superpower. Clear that fast lane on the commute. And how will people know that they have this power unless they make these attempts against them? All of this certainly reminds us of one of the great prophets in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah. And you remember in, I think it's 2 Kings chapter 1, where uh, the wicked king uh, at that time of the Jews, he sends this series, companies of soldiers, one after the other, to try and arrest Elijah. And Elijah calls fire down from heaven, and, and they're consumed. And so we see this same imagery here that is being uh, used here. So it isn't hard to imagine that during the ministry of these, three, the, uh, of these two witnesses, that multiple uh, uh, military units will be sent by the Antichrist to silence them and bring their ministry to, uh, to an end and, and find themselves equally consumed. You see, the other supernatural enablements that they're going to have listed in verse 6, they'll have the power to shut up heaven. No rain will fall during the period of their prophecy. This is another mark of Elijah's ministry, you might uh, remember. They'll also have power over waters to turn them uh, to blood. And here I think we see a very significant nod uh, to Moses in the Old Testament. Uh, the turning of waters into blood, one of the ten plagues that God uh, brought into existence through Moses in order to redeem His people from their bondage in, in Egypt. 
They'll also have the power to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they uh, desire. Again, if we allow the Old Testament to interpret the book of Revelation, which is wise to do, it's hard to ignore Moses as one of these two witnesses. As the, it was plagues that were, came forth from Moses, directed by God uh, in, in the redemption from, from Egypt. But it does raise the question of, who are these two witnesses? Almost certainly one of them will be Elijah. And uh, Malachi speaks to a prophecy concerning Elijah's ministry at the end of the age. Remember Elijah, he didn't die a natural death. He was taken up into the glory of heaven in a fiery chariot. And so uh, Malachi uh, uh, prophesied, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Speaking of uh, the tribulation period and most specifically the second half of the tribulation period. Jesus affirmed all of that. He was asked by the Jewish religious leaders of his day and they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first before the coming of Messiah? And he answered and he told them, Elijah does come first and restores all things. So Elijah's a pretty safe bet on being one of the two witnesses. Lots of views related to the second witness. There are some uh, Christians who believe it will be the Old Testament figure of Enoch because like Elijah, uh, Enoch didn't die. Uh, Enoch walked with God and then he was not because the Lord uh, took him. And so the idea is because these are the two great figures in the Old Testament that did not experience death and because they haven't experienced death, they haven't finished their ministries yet because God knew that they would finish their ministries during the tribulation uh, period. Then there's others, and myself included, who are inclined to believe this is Moses. Again, because the miracles point so strongly to him. We also see Moses and Elijah united during the time of Jesus' ministry when they meet with him up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They are full-blown believers in Jesus as the Messiah and, and, uh, and are... are uh, are, are saved, but we see them in that context with Jesus. And additionally, I, I think, what two better witnesses? If you were saying, what two witnesses from the Old Testament could we send to the Jews in Jerusalem to get their attention and to preach the gospel to them that Jesus is the Messiah, and if they won't listen to these two, they won't listen to anyone? Well, you'd be hard-pressed to choose a better two than Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. And the, the Jews don't speak of the Old Testament as the Old Testament. They refer to it as the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah are highly esteemed by the Jewish people. And so here... I think the world, is, uh, as they come in, these are going to be the two witnesses. And uh, I think the world is going to hear some of the most amazing sermons in history. As these two men call on the whole world to repent, 
put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they do so building the case for faith in Jesus on the basis of the law and on the basis of the prophets, and then in describing Jesus as the fulfillment of those prophecies. That is going to be some kind of preaching and, and, and uh, handling of the Scriptures that's going to occur in those days. All I know is that if I were Jewish, and uh, one day I woke up and I heard Moses and Elijah in the city of Jerusalem condemning the, the tribulation uh, tabernacle, and condemning my unbelief concerning Jesus as the Messiah, and then confirming their messages with accompanying signs and wonders like this, I would give my unbelief concerning Jesus a second thought. And I would give my attendance in that temple a second thought as well. You just couldn't have two people uh, with more authority to a Jew Jewish audience than those two. Now, we notice their death in verses 7 through 10. After the 1,260 days uh, into the tribulation, God lifts His supernatural protection off of the two witnesses, and the Antichrist then makes war against them. He overcomes them, and He kills them. If you have any kind of uh, uh, tendency or willingness uh, to put notes in your Bible or to underline passages in your Bible, this is a great place to do that. This will not occur until you notice they finish their testimony. It will not happen until their ministry is complete. And these two witnesses will be invincible. They will be indestructible until their ministries are over. And the wonderful thing about that is that that's not just true of them serving God during the tribulation period, but that's true of every Christian in our uh, service to the Lord as we're involved and engaged in His calling upon our lives. Job spoke of this in Job chapter 14. Let me read a passage to you. He said, Man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? And who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? Not one. And then he declares, since his days are determined, speaking of man's days, the number of his months is with you, he says to God. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. At the end of the Apostle Paul's life, when it approached, he wrote uh, concerning the approach of life in this very same vein. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, and finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will give to me on that day, and not to me only, 
but to all who have loved His appearing. And here you have the Apostle Paul, and death is approaching, and when death is approaching him, he doesn't speak of it as some kind of random, out-of-control event that is decreed by some Roman Caesar at the time in, in which he's alive, but he speaks of his impending death as the evidence that his ministry is through, that his race is is concluded. His ministry, God's purposes for His life in the world are finished. And when it's time to go to heaven, it's time to go to heaven. Who would want to be in this world one hour beyond the grace that God gives us as Christians to be in this world? I wouldn't want to experience it for five minutes let alone an hour. When we're done, we're done. And it's time to clear out. But with the confidence that God's purposes for our lives have been finished. And now He's taking us home uh, into uh, heaven. And this truth that God numbers our days is a wonderful truth. And, th and we think about the peace and the confidence it gives us in life. And it's a peace and a confidence that no one else possesses in life. That realization that I am invincible uh, in, 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 until my ministry, until our service is concluded. Their bodies were told in verse 8, following the Antichrist uh, murder of them, they're left unburied uh, on the streets of Jerusalem. And this is an expression of just the sheer hatred of the Antichrist and of the, the population of the world uh, uh, against these, these two witnesses, but even more against their message. Now, that's what they really hated them for, was the message. Now in Israel, in those days and to this day, when a Jewish person dies, they are buried that day. Even if you have to have the, 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 the ceremony at 11.45 at night, they always bury on the day uh, of, of, uh, of the death. And to, to leave a body unburied out in the elements and to do so for three and a half days, and it, this is just an expression of deep disrespect. It is the world wanting to humiliate these two in a way that they were unable to do while they were uh, alive and they're communicating they don't deserve to be buried. Now Jerusalem is clearly identified here as the site of all this, the site of Jesus' crucifixion. It's interesting that God refers to Jerusalem at that time as being spiritually Sodom and Egypt. Two of the most infamous places in the entire Old Testament. Sodom for its wickedness, Egypt for its idolatry, but Jerusalem is going to outdo both of them in terms of going down in history as the site of the crucifixion of the very Son of God, of the Jewish Messiah, and in part at the hands of the Jews. And then if that were not enough, these two witnesses will be martyred in that same city. 
The whole world, we're told in verse 9, is going to view their dead bodies for three and a half years. And, uh, three and a half days, rather. This would have been impossible before satellites. It would have been impossible before electronics and before uh, television sets and computers. You realize that there were over 1,900 years worth of Christians who read before we did Revelation chapter 11 and wondered how in the world can these two die in Jerusalem and the whole world witness it? And they had to live with that mystery, not knowing that satellites were coming and television was coming and the ability for us to watch everything that is happening in any part of the world for the whole world to watch it at once. And then to know that virtually all uh, uh, media groups will be untouched by the rapture. And so, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. It's terrible, terrible humor. Terrible humor. And be uh, ready to record the whole thing. But here, now, in this time in human history, it'll be effortless for the whole world to watch it. Uh, and to watch the bodies for the three and a half days. The world, we're told in verse 10, is going to celebrate their deaths with rejoicing and partying and giving gifts to one another. And so, the celebration, gift-giving, I mean, they're happy. I mean, they're more than happy. They're giddy. Let's buy gifts for one another. These two people are, uh, are, are dead. And they celebrate the deaths of these two witnesses in part by thinking that the ability of the Antichrist to put them to death at that, at that moment in time, that it represents a great victory of the Antichrist uh, 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 and, and by the devil behind the Antichrist, uh, a victory over the two witnesses. And, 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 and it can, they're convinced that the death of God's witnesses here means that the Antichrist has also defeated their God and has also silenced the truth of their message, that it, that it has taken and nullified the messages that God spoke through these two, two witnesses. And the reason that is given here for the parting that goes on is because of how these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth with their holy God-given messages. It's the only record of rejoicing on the earth during the entire tribulation period as it's recorded in Scripture. What a wicked world it will be. But you see the same spirit of Antichrist very much at work uh, even uh, today. You see how more and more people are tormented by the Word of God. They are tormented even by the idea of absolute truths, of definitions of right and wrong, that God has definitions of right and wrong, tormented by His call uh, to, uh, to repentance from sin, tormented by the call to come to salvation through faith in Christ for that salvation. And you see how, how strongly in my lifetime how strongly they have worked, even quietly in some regards, to remove any exposure that a person might have 
publicly, any public exposure to God, to the Ten Commandments, to the Word of God, anyone uh, speaking the Word uh, of God in the endeavor to remove all of it from our public life. But as the old saying goes, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. And not only is their torment not over, it is hardly begun. You notice in verse 11, the resurrection of these two. After three and a half years, the breath of the life of God will enter them and they will stand on their feet. Keep the cameras rolling, ladies and gentlemen. And imagine how awesome and sobering this will be as the whole world watches it occur. And God really knows how to ruin a I hate God and His Word party. And that's exactly what He does here. The reaction of the world, interesting, in verse 11, is great fear fell upon those who witnessed it. And so the two witnesses then will hear this loud voice from heaven, obviously God, who calls them to come up here. They then ascend into heaven. And in this, God uh, confirms His spoken word by, uh, to the world by the two witnesses with accompanying signs and wonders. If you have two witnesses that has spoken for three and a half years, that salvation is found in trusting in Jesus and the salvation that has been provided to mankind through His death, His burial, and His resurrection. The only miracle that you can add to that message that can top uh, calling plagues and fire into existence is uh, when God takes and when you die for you to then experience that death and then you be resurrected and then you ascend into heaven and there's nothing anyone can do about it. And the, and the entire miracle of the waiting the three and a half days, waiting for the suspense to build, the unexpectedness of all of it is again to confirm uh, with signs and wonders the messages that they had been speaking and especially the message concerning salvation. Their resurrection and ascension is going to be followed, we're told, by a great earthquake destroying a tenth of the city of Jerusalem. 7,000 people will be killed as a result. The rest of the population of the city of Jerusalem, wonderfully, are made afraid by, of all of this when they see it. And they give glory uh, to the God of heaven. I believe this is the Jews, again, who will be, are now and will be the dominant majority population in the city uh, of, of Jerusalem by far, and this is going to deeply impact many of them. As it, it appears, many of them take the, the message of the two witnesses uh, seriously now at this point, and they trust in Jesus for salvation. I can't speak for anybody else. I'm not going to be on that scene. I'm not going to be in the Great Tribulation as a Christian. But if I heard as a Jewish person Moses and Elijah preaching for three and a half years and then I witnessed their death and I witnessed their resurrection and their ascension into heaven, I'm going to rethink my rejection of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to rethink 
the legitimacy that I have given to that tribulation uh, temple. And then, uh, and in the Antichrist, as it relates to all of this, uh, and, and put my trust in Jesus Christ, and then when these events occur, and then immediately the Antichrist does the abomination that causes desolation, the Jewish population will realize immediately, we have been fooled. We have been completely fooled. And so they, these, this miracle will put a very significant dent in, in the party and all of the adulation that's directed to the Antichrist three and a half days earlier in what appeared to be a great victory over uh, the two witnesses and the false conclusion of the world that that made him power, more powerful than the God of these two witnesses. And so we leave God's two witnesses, our brothers in the Lord. They're our brothers in the Lord. We'll meet them one day. But we leave them now in the pages of the book of Revelation here in chapter 11 and we'll move on to other things. But we want to just think about two, two very simple truths that we learn from their lives and from their ministries. I can't help but read about these two and be impacted by their faithfulness. Their faithfulness to God. Their faithfulness to His call upon their lives. Their faithfulness to stand for the truth their faithfulness to speak the truth, and the fa their faithfulness to do all of this even in the face of death. And to remember that these, aren't, these are not superhuman men. They're, they are men just like human beings, just like we are as men and women uh, in, in this room. And, but they have what all of us have as Christians, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit to make a stand for God in the midst of darkness. And I, I don't, I'm not talking about being in situations and then forcing some kind of uncomfortable thing on people uh, in, in an environment where it might be inappropriate uh, to start to tell somebody something about from the Bible. Uh, to get up and interrupt a speech or something like that. These men prophesied when God told them to prophesy. And what it means is that when we find ourselves in these situations, and we find ourselves in these situations in life, and God prompts us to speak His truth, against that darkness, against that light, uh, with that, that light, and against those lies, that we do so. It's very easy to hunker down. No one knows I'm a Christian. Nobody knows what my views are on anything. I cannot be salt and light in the world if there isn't a stand that is taken for God and His truth in some way and in some areas of our life. And so this speaks very, very powerful, to powerfully to us of the necessity for us to be faithful in these areas, in this little moment in history that God has called us to as a witness of Him. And then the second thing that we find here is the, the privilege that is ours to live confident that God numbers our days. And that when our days are 
up, that they're immediately followed by a, a resurrection and by an ascension into heaven and ultimately a well done from the very lips of Jesus. And again, that is a confidence that no one else possesses in life. It produces a boldness. It produces a bravery. It produces an obedience that nobody else possesses in life. That knowledge, just that small piece of the Christian life, and it is a wonderful, wonderful uh, part of the peace and the confidence that we experience in the world in which we live in a world that is terrified by the approach of death and what might happen uh, after it. And so, these beautiful lessons that we learn from the two witnesses here. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, Jesus said, He who is not for me is against me. There's no neutrality with Him. I'm not really for Him. I'm not really against Him. If I'm not for Him, I'm against Him. That's how this works. And until you surrender your life to Him, repent of your sins, turn to Him for salvation, and put your faith in Him for that salvation, and be born again by the Holy Spirit this morning, then you're against Him. But why live another day of life living against Him when I can live for Him and experience the life that He has planned for me, forgiveness of sins, everlasting life in heaven, power to live a different kind of life now, all of it waiting for you. And just a prayer away. And there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin that relationship today if you never have. If you need prayer for anything this morning, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now. We'll close in prayer. Father, how dear these two witnesses are to us. We haven't met them yet. We haven't seen this part of their lives. We've seen them in your Old Testament Scriptures. But what an amazing thing they're going to do for you in, in that period of time. And thank You, Lord, for Your heart for the loss that is found all the way through the book of Revelation and how You will protect them, how You will confirm the message with accompanying signs and wonders, and how You will endeavor through those signs and wonders and through Your truth to break through even the hardest hearts in the hopes that some will be saved even in that dark and late hour in human history. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for saving us, Lord. We pray that You would open our lips and open up our lives and in the same way that You do for them, that You would help us to speak for You, to stand for You, not in a way that doesn't look like You, not to strive in the flesh to create some kind of an Ishmael, but not to be dumb mutes all the way through our Christian life as we're exposed to this kind of power and ability that even we have by Your Holy Spirit. And we pray and we ask these things, and we thank You this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.